0: Shock Murky Radio is entertainment for adults, by adults, and the views and opinions expressed here do not reflect upon the sponsors or FXBG Public Radio. For additional information, please refer to the United States Bill of Rights. Stand. Warned. Do you think that horses think we are crazy because humans play polo? I mean, when racing horses, I think even horses understand the concept of a race. Even running around and jumping fences. I bet horses find some enjoyment out of that. And perhaps even understand the value of exercise. exercise. Sitting in a pen all, all the all the time, eating and pooping, can bore even horses, I imagine. But polo? Riding around on horses, whacking a ball on the ground with a stick? If you wanted to whack that ball, why wouldn't it be easier to get off the horse to smack it? Don't you think horses would think the people who play polo are nuts? I don't know, maybe it's just me that doesn't understand Polo. Perhaps there are smart horses out there that do understand Polo, but they are horses and they are the spawn of the devil and have no business in North America, and if I had my druthers, I would slaughter all of them. Welcome to Shock Monkey Radio. I'm your host, the Madman. Mmm. That's a beverage, delicious beverage. I want to remind you that I have a Patreon. Go over to patreon.com slash shockmonkeyradio. Become a patron. I would appreciate it. I also have a cash app. Use the cash tag shockmonkeyradio. All one word. If you want to send me some cash, I would appreciate it. You can also email me for my mailbag segments at at madmanfxbgpr.com. And I can feature you in a mailbag. So check all that out. I would appreciate your support uh, and all that. (laughs) <laughs> okay so uh it may be a short show to st- show today uh I, it's thanksgiving week I feel entitled to be lazy and ek's not feeling great either still still uh still fighting the bug and uh yeah he's kind of exhausted I know the feeling <laughs> anyone who's had it has been there okay so uh I'm sure'm I'm, I'm sure you watch Rick and morty Uh, If, yeah, if you watch this show, you probably know what Rick and Morty is. You probably watch it. I mean, because it's, you know, it's intelligent, but still accessible enough, you know. Uh, But there's this one episode I was thinking about earlier today. Uh, It's the one where they go to get the death crystals and Morty holds on to the death crystal. And he just keeps focusing on this future where he dies with Jessica, his crush. And in the process of doing this, uh, Rick ends up getting killed. And uh, the DNA gets taken. Morty takes the DNA from the body of Rick Sanchez and put, plugs it into the car. As Morty goes off to do his own thing to find that find a way to end up dying with Jessica. But what what happens to Rick is he keeps getting recycled through his Phoenix program. And if you remember the uh, the episode Tiny Rick episode, he had uh, all these uh, vats that he kept clones of himself in. And apparently. Other versions of himself also had this Phoenix program. And so his consciousness, that particular consciousness of Rick, kept getting put into bodies of these other Phoenix programs in different realities. And uh, almost every single one is a uh, fascist dystopia. Okay? Each time he gets a new body, there's little differences and stuff like that. Sometimes he's a shrimp. Sometimes he's a wasp. You know, as a wasp body and stuff like that. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty funny gag. Because uh, every every single time, it's like he gets, a, gets into a new body. And they, it's too fastidious. <laughs> and he's like, nope, and then kills himself again to give it another shot. Uh, or maybe it's just, just to kill himself, because who wants to live in a fascist dystopia? So uh, I think it's funny because there's a scene where he's running away from all these, like, you know, shrimp Nazis or something like that. And uh he he shouts out loud, wondering to himself, it was like, geez, when did this become the default? And uh, uh I'm sorry to say, Rick, I mean you should know this that authoritarian author- authoritarianism constantly keeps raising its ugly head. All right. And so I want you to think about that when you and pray for our friends in Australia and in Europe. I don't know if you keep up with uh, news that goes on in other countries, because there will always be people who want to be authoritarian. And that's why there are all these mask Nazis over the last year, trying to tell people how to live their lives. There are tons of people out there that want to become a fast, uh, want the world to become a fascist dystopia. All right. And fastest fascist dystopias don't come about because somebody says, Hey, I want to make a fascist dystopia. No, it's always some supervillain who thinks he's going to save the world with their, with their idea of utopia. And so when it comes to the people in Australia being carted off to concentration camps, when it comes to the people in the Netherlands, you know, walking around the streets and the cops are saying, do you have, you have your papers? You know, I don't, there's always, there's always going to be somebody who wants to be the power grabbing authoritarians. All right. Europeans and the Australians, they don't have a second amendment like the U S has. Okay. So their government does not fear the people. And that's why they are getting away with this nonsense. All right. In America. And for the time being, the government is still a little scared of the armed populace. And you need to keep that in mind. That is a difference between us and them. I, I mentioned it. like I think it was last week or two weeks ago. You know, the American way is the best way. And it's because of things like the second amendment. All right. Because as soon as they try to tell me, I have to show my papers just to go to the grocery store. You know, that's a problem. That's a big problem. America should not be the kind of place that ends up going into the way of the fascist dy- dystopia. All right. And if, I'm I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I mean, it's one thing in Australia where, you know, they weren't really involved in the second world war <laughs> that much. I mean, no, it's not a whole lot of resources and and Australia and uh, Japan just never got around to invading. I think they tried. I'm not sure. They tried to. I mean, if they went after the illusions, I mean, <laughs> why wouldn't they go after Australia? Uh, Australia. Um, but in Europe, it seems to keep coming up. You know, they had all these little balkanized nations all over Europe. And for centuries, there are kings and monarchs and emperors and stuff like that. And eventually some Napoleon comes around or some Adolf comes around. And changes the whole world, tries to change the whole world. All right. (laughs) It's odd that Europeans haven't learned their lesson. Mm, Coughing. I smoke too much. Mm, I've been watching a lot of old movies lately. Uh, And, you, you know, back when people smoked in films, you know, and I have to say, you know, some actors just don't know how to convincingly act like a smoker. Uh, sometimes they'll hold a burning cigarette between their teeth for too long. It's not a cigar, all right? It's a cigarette. It's not a cigar or they'll, uh, they'll stuff the smoke all the way up in between the fingers near the knuckles. What are you doing? You're not fooling anybody. You don't know. You don't know anything about smoking. Anyway, I think it's just better that if have. To have everyone on in a movie to just to be a non-smoker, you know, it's like, how come they never make movies about smokers? It's like, because it's a pain in the ass, you know. I mean, at least let the actual smokers play the smokers. All right. Because when I see somebody who doesn't know what they're doing uh when it comes to smoking, it just pulls me right out of the film. Pulls me right out of it. All right. And so imagine those scenes where uh that are being filmed where someone is smoking in the scene and they have to do another take of the filming so the actor needs to light up a new cigarette just to make sure that the cigarette is the same length in the con- in the con- in that point in the conversation or the action how many great performances have ended up on the cutting room floor because a cigarette was too long or too short for continuity's sake seems like an aggravating detail to keep track of in a movie so maybe no movies involving characters who smoke is a good idea smoking is bad is what i'm saying don't don't do it Just do as I say. Don't do as I do. Like I said, it's going to be a short one today. Uh, So uh, I watched Minority Report again. And I have to say, that's a damn fine flick. It's a really good movie. All right. So this whole movie hinges upon the concept of pre-crime law enforcement. They have three psychics sedated and plugged into machines who see murders in the future. Now, first of all, I find that concept immensely offensive. Psychics are still people, right? I don't care how many murders are stopped before they can happen. But you cannot keep three people constantly sedated in an infinity pool. That's insane. That's inhumane. It's cruel. And I am shocked that no one in the movie brings that up. They're people, not assets. They are people, not futuristic computers that you can exploit as you please. And why do they need to laser engrave wooden balls with the suspect and victim names? Seems like all those computers, could, all those computers in the room, you could just send the names to a screen. But you abs- but if you absolutely have to have the wooden balls, why not use just one? It seems wasteful. And how the hell did they even record what these psychics are seeing in their minds, anyway? I don't know. Anyway, the movie opens up on an investigation and an arrest of a future murderer. Guy suspects his wife is cheating. He gets confirmation by playing hooky and sneaking back into the house to find his wife with another man. And prior to any violence, Ethan Hunt and Buck Compton bust in and arrest the husband for a murder he didn't commit. Yet, and I'll be honest, I have to admit that something terrible was about to happen (laughs) in that situation. But nothing had happened yet. So the husband is convicted and sent to prison for a crime he did not commit. and he. But he probably was going to do it. <laughs> and this investigation and opening sequence is supposed to be showing pre-crime actually working. And almost immediately after you get hit over the head with the pre-crime propaganda, you immediately get hit over the head with the pre-crime propaganda with a commercial touting the success of pre-crime and pushing for the program to go national. At this point in the film, it's just limited to the district, probably in southern Maryland, northern Virginia. All right, so um, John Anderton, who is uh, Tom's crew's character, uh, he he is a zealot for this pre-crime system. And he believes in it almost solely because his son was snatched one day from a very crowded pool, and he wishes, pre- uh, he wishes pro- uh, pre-crime I wrote program <laughs> pre-crime existed back then to spare himself and his now ex-wife that particular pain. And that is why he believes that is why he is a zealot. And speaking of zealots, my favorite character in this film is Danny Whitwer, a guy from the Department of Justice who is sent to audit the pre-crime system. I like this character because he wanted to be a priest but then realized at some point that he looks like Colin Farrell and God doesn't want us to waste be, uh, want us to be wasteful with the gifts he gives us. Uh plus I think his faith is constantly being tested in this film. And that scene in the elevator when he says uh, put the gun down John I don't hear a red ball and then all of a sudden that red ball alarms down and you see that that doubt that faith in God just <laughs> leave his face. It's a good actor. Colin Farrell's a good actor. He's a good-looking man too. You know, I'm not, I'm 100% straight, but I'm, Whew, good looking man. <laughs> EK, EK feels well enough to laugh. That's a good thing. Okay. All right. Um, Yeah. Put the gun down, John. All right. So that's probably my favorite scene. So obviously this entire movie is about free will and predetermination. And so the second act is about the precogs naming the zealot, John Anderton, as a fugitive murderer. Future murderer, excuse me. And he is the one who conducts the investigation. What's funny is that he runs. Everyone runs, as they say. However, he could have surrendered immediately once he saw this possible future and thus proving that humans have free will. But that would negate the premise of pre-crime, the pre-crime program. So John runs and they chase him. Now, I don't want to describe the rest of the movie because it, it, it really is good. And if you haven't seen it, you really should. But I want to talk about the religious themes in the movie because they directly, uh, that they directly refer to frequently. The bathtub in which they keep the precogs in is called the temple. The guy watching the innocent prisoners of pre-crime, his name is Gideon. They even have a conversation about being, quote, more like clergy, clergy than cops while in the temple. It's very relevant because this movie is such an example about the of the argument about free will and predetermination because those first conversations about it probably happened in churches. I think the movie did a good job in presenting these ideas in a way that anyone can understand. Plus, they don't really give commentary on it or make a judgment on it. I mean, they kind of uh, land on the side of free will. All right. Or actually, it's more like the conclusion at the end of Forrest Gump. It's a little bit of both. And and I agree. I think it is a little bit of both. Um, Additionally, the film addresses the idea of our civil rights being infringed upon, not only by the government, but by corporations also. Retina scans have become the new fingerprint in this future, and advertisers scan your eyes in public and tailor ads to you by name. The worst part is that scene with the spiders, the little walking drones that come into your private property and scan your eyes. In that scene, they announced that pre-crime led to laws that allows this for this violation of the fourth amendment. I find this to be the biggest reason why I would vote against pre-crime. However, newspapers look cool in this future. They, they update in real time. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Uh, do you need to buy just one newspaper or is it like a subscription sent thing? And if you don't pay the subscription, the paper just goes blank and yeah. Anyway, but there's one exchange that sums it all up in this movie. And that's when, uh, Buck Compton, I forget the actor's name, but you know, he didn't get really get work until after band of brothers. And so, uh, he has this conversation where they confront John. They're about to arrest him. And he says, you don't have to run you know, I don't you don't have to run, John. And uh John says, well, you don't you don't have to chase me. Sums it all up. Really does. So Minority Report, 12 of 13 stars. Big stars, big director, sci-fi, action and philosophy. It's got the holy triumvirate. The holy trinity. <laughs> but the very existence of Minority Reports you know, one of the twins disagreeing about the potential potentiality of a different future. I think that invalidates the the entire idea of pre-crime. Anyway, great flick. If you haven't seen it, you should. But I I watched it again. I had a lot of thoughts on it, and so wrote some notes down. You know, I could. A lot of people say it's like, you know, not, there's not many many good movies in the modern era, and I don't know. I watched two of them last night. I watched Minority Report again. And I watched, uh, Dread again. And those are two really good, really good movies that came out in the modern era. There's some, there's those, uh, Andrew Clavins out there that they still only watch black and white films. And I'm just like, how can you stand it? How can you stand it? <laughs> anyway, um, I want to talk about one more thing before I get into the news worth knowing is one is something I don't really talk about that often. Uh. But I've been, uh, I've, I've been thinking about Jenny a lot lately. Um, m- more specifically, dreaming about her. Uh, Jenny is short for Virginia, a girl I knew. Let's set the Wayback Machine to 1994, 1995. I was 17, 18 years old. Uh, about to graduate high school and all that. And we got this new girl coming to our church named Virginia. And uh, Jenny for short. You know, she was a svelte. Brown hair, brown eyed country girl, a little tinge of ginger in her hair. And she immediately took a shine to me and I took a shine to her. Next thing you know, we were dating. We were going out. I was a big spender back then. We were going out to pizza hut, make out my mom's, uh, Delta 88 in the parking lot. Classic nineties stuff. (laughs) And, uh, you know, she was, she was a real, real great chick. She, um, she worked at this convenience store and we were both Christians because we met at church and so forth. We were both Christians and she's she was always getting into arguments with their boss because her boss sold cigarettes. Her boss boss sold alcohol in the convenience store and it sold pornography in a convenience store. And she, so she was always arguing with him that he shouldn't be selling such things. And even back then I was a smoker and she would get furious at me, furious at me if she tasted cigarettes on me, smelled it on me. Uh, maybe she should she was perfectly right for me maybe she knew that you know and so uh we'd always have we'd have these conversations about the future and i was you know 18 and the future scared the hell out of me it really terrified me and she'd we she'd say stuff like i'll keep working at the convenience store and you'll go off to college and when you graduate you get back and we'll get married and and that kind of talk, when I was 17, 18 years old, it terrified me, and I broke up with her. But we had dated for some months before that particular conversation happened. And uh, we fooled around a bit, quite a bit. <laughs> uh, there was even one or two times where I could have had sex with her, and I did not. I did not have sex with her. And uh, I guess I listened too much. To those Christians saying no premarital sex, you yeah, know, it's all that. And but uh, I broke up with her because I felt I felt that I was terrified about the future and I was uncertain about where I wanted my life to go. Plus, I thought I could do better because <laughs> I, I was eighteen and arrogant. You know, you think I'm arrogant now? Imagine me at eighteen. All right, so um, we broke up, and I know she was tore up about it. And I was, I was a little tore up too, because I, you know, I really did like her. And so, um, I, I don't know if she stopped coming to church for a while or if, uh, we just avoided each other for a while. But after a few months, uh, we had this harvest festival at the church and someone asked us like, Hey, we need to get some ice or something like that. Can you run over to the thing, get some, a couple bags of ice. And she was like, Oh, Scott, why don't you come with me and get in my car? We'll go get some ice. I was like, okay, no problem. And so we go and get this ice, and we have this conversation in the car about it's like, have you been dating anybody? And I, I was like, no, because I wasn't. And she said, yeah, I dated this guy for a couple of weeks, and it didn't work out. I didn't didn't really work out. I was like, okay, cool. And we had this conversation about possibly getting back together. You know, it's like I, I, I told her I felt like I may have screwed up by breaking up with her and. And, you know, it looked like we were going to get back together, but uh, I don't know, like two or three days later, uh, she got into an argument with her mother, like many teenagers do at that age. And so uh, she got into an argument, got upset, uh, ran outside, jumped in her car and went driving in this heightened emotional state and ended up uh, plowing into another car and she died in that accident. I think she also killed the other driver in that accident. And so, um, and obviously it's a very sad story. Um, uh, and I think there's a a few lessons you need to take away, uh, right away. And the first lesson I think is, you know, do not drive if you're emotionally heightened, you know, if you're angry, uh, sad, you know, and I've driven in those states. And when I've been in those states and I I get a near miss or something like that, I always think of Jenny. I always think that Jenny's looking out for me. All right? Uh, The second lesson is carpe those DMs. You know? You don't know how many DMs you got. And you don't know how many chances to carpe you got either. And so uh, I think that's what carpe DM means. And I regret the fact that I did not have sex with her. Not because sex is awesome and sex is fun. Sex is best when it's one-on-one. On one. What I mean is that I I wish I had given her what she wanted. Because she clearly wanted to have sex with me. She was like straight up in my face. Are we going to do this or what? You know, kind of thing. You know, I, I wish I could have given her what she wanted before she died. And who knows if if I had done things differently, maybe she'd still be alive. And these are the things that I think of even 25, 26 years later after her, her, her death. You know, I didn't go to the funeral because I'm a coward. Um, I have no pictures of her. All I have is my memory and my regret. And so I want, you know, I just want you to think about these, these kinds of things when you make decisions because you know, there's finite, There's a finite number of chances. And there's a one thing I want to read to you. It's a lyrics from an air, air supply song. I wish I could carry your smile in my heart for times when my life seems so low. It would make me believe what tomorrow could bring when today doesn't really know. Doesn't really know. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. I know you were right, believing for so long. I'm all out of love. What am I without you? I can't be too late to say that I was so wrong. Carpe them diems. All right, let's get into the news worth knowing. Let's bring it up a beat, huh? Hey, it's the news worth knowing. I told you I want to get that clip from that uh, "Always Sunny" thing. Makes you want to put a gun in your mouth. So get real high. <laughs> That's the news. That's reading the news for me. All right, let's go to the top story. I'm sure you know what this is. Uh, Waukesha. Uh, what's it? Uh, Matt Walsh calls it Waukesha. <laughs> I, I think he knows he's pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> Waukesha, locals describe the chaotic Christmas parade scene and uh, question the suspect's bail. Okay, so if you don't know about this, this is in Waukesha, Wisconsin. They have great names for towns up in Wisconsin. All these, I want to say, Native American names, but I want to say Lakota Sioux names. I don't know. Um, so residents and business owners told Fox News uh, when they experienced uh, what they experienced when a vehicle plowed through a crowded Christmas parade in downtown Waukesha, Wisconsin, killing five and injuring dozens of others. "Quote: We heard an." We heard the noise outside first starting when the vehicle must have hit the person, said Norman Bruce, who owns a book and toy store along with along the parade route. Uh, quote, when I when I stood up, I could see that there are some band members in from the Waukesha South High School laying in the street. And everybody's like, oh, that's not normal. <laughs> uh, he told Fox News he opened up his shop doors to offer parade goers protection from the chaos once he saw the destruction outside. Uh, quote, I got up and went over to the door and invited people in. Bruce said, we made sure that everybody got in safely. Bruce, who owns a shop with his wife, said one of the injured band members made his way into the store where he received treatment. Uh, two people grabbed one of the band members that was hurt. Bruce told Fox news. He was bleeding from his head and we brought him in. We got a chair and sat him down and they kept on attending to him. Crystal, who love, who lives above the nice ash cigar bar. Cool name. Uh, where she also works as a bartender said uh, she also brought frightened spectators into the bar. Poor them all shots. Uh, quote I was watching the parade out my window, she told Fox News. Uh, came downstairs and walked into the bar just to start and just started bringing people into the bar and having people shelter inside to find their kids, find their family. <coughs> Excuse me. Crystal said she estimated the SUV was driving roughly 40 miles an hour. And it appeared the driver was aiming at people and hitting them and then driving over them. A young man named Hayden, who's, who, who who said he spent most of his life in Waukesha, told Fox News, quote, I had a lot of friends there at the Wau- Waukesha South Band that got hit. One of my best friends got hit, bruised ribs and everything. But I knew everyone that got injured. Guillermo, a Waukesha local who owns a local dress shop downtown, Said he didn't attend the parade, but his family was there to take take in the unofficial kickoff to the Christmas season. Quote, I feel very bad because my family was there, he told Fox News. Thanks to God, they're all okay, but other people close to my family, they are in the hospital. Uh, Daryl Brooks was arrested and charged with multiple homicide counts over the incident. Brooks, who has a lengthy criminal history, was recently locked up on felony charges but released after he posted a $1,000 cash bail earlier this month. Quote, I think the low bail is what made it possible for him, the suspect, to be out there, uh, out here to do that, a man named Rick told Fox News as he smoked a cigar inside nice Ash cigar bar. Quote, if he hadn't bailed out, if he hadn't bailed out, this would have never happened, never have happened. Okay. Well, um there's one thing I, I I want to say before everyone gets all their, you know, their panties in a bunch about this thing. It's like this guy's been arrested. Calm down. Don't jump to any conclusions. All right? That's the mistakes of the Rittenhouse trial, okay? What I will say, the difference is between the Rittenhouse trial and this arrest is that they're not really bringing up what's on his social media. They're not really mentioning that this guy was a BLM supporter. That this guy had all sorts of racist lyrics in his lap uh, rap videos, rap music. You know, they're ignoring. They're ignoring this. They're certainly even Fox News is not really talking about this. Cause, cause uh, you know, if you want to s- say that uh, you know racism is an issue, is it? Like, I agree. It can. It can be an issue. Especially if there's some militant guy who's been reading the wrong news, been misinformed for far too long because of the mainstream media trying to tell him that because of his skin color, you know, that the, the whole society, whole of American society is stacked against him, which is nonsense. It's nonsense. All right. When it comes to justice, it has to be done on a case by case basis. That's why I'm saying you have to wait for all the evidence to get collected to find out, you know, what actually happened. And just like the Rittenhouse trial, we didn't really know what actually happened until the verdict came in. That's how law works in this country. So don't jump to conclusions about this guy, although I think it is quite obvious that he's probably just some racist person who hates white people. I could be wrong, and I'll be glad to say I was wrong. I'd be happy to find out there's one less race. I was wrong about somebody being a racist. Anyway, let's go on to this next story about Kyle Rittenhouse because he was on Tucker Carlson. I don't know if you watched it, but boy. Uh, uh, Tucker Carlson is one of the most lovable goobers I've ever seen (laughs) because he is a goober. Oh, man, he is such a goober. Anyway, uh, so Kyle Rittenhouse rec- re- recounts the Kenosha riots, reacts to media portrayal of the trial in the first interview since his acquittal. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, in an in exclusive interview with Fox News' Tucker Carlson, Kyle Rittenhouse spoke out about the night of the Kenosha riots that led to his arrest, as well as a, as his eventual acquittal by jury and the angry reaction of the mainstream media and Democrats, including President Biden. Rittenhouse, who was 18 years old, was acquitted in the shooting deaths of two men, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum, uh, as well as the wounding of Gage Grosskreutz, uh, whom he shot through the right bicep after a protester pointed a pistol at him. Uh, Rittenhouse told Carlson that he was staying at the home of a friend during the Kenosha riots and was mystified and troubled by the lack of resources provided to the police force in trying to quell the violence after the shooting of Jacob Blake. Quote, I'm not really sure where the police presence was because they have a hard job, but I don't really think they got the support they needed, he said. The governor, Tony Evers, failed the community, and there should have been a lot more resources to help with that. Evers, a Democrat, was critiqued at the time by several observers, uh, including then-President Trump, for the perceived inaction as the Wisconsin city was engulfed in violence. Rittenhouse uh, recalled the first time he saw Rosenbaum, who who he noted he had never met, but was taken aback by the violent nature of the man. Rosenbaum, a convicted child abuser, also appeared to uh, unsettle nearby rioters at the time, Rittenhouse said. Quote, there was an action." Uh, there was actually a second time I encountered him and he said to the group, he said, uh, this is the second time he threatened to kill everybody. He said, I'm going to effing kill you. I'm going to cut your heart hearts out, you effing N-words. That sounds like the pattern the guy used. <laughs> That's how he <we> talked. <laughs> when asked by Carl uh, Carlson, Rittenhouse remarked that the rioters were disassociating with him because he was spewing the N-word around and <laughs> they didn't want to s- seem to want to deal with him. Yeah. That's how it goes. (laughs) That guy seems crazy. Let's get away from him. Give him a wide berth. You know? (laughs) Uh, He then went on to recount the events that led to him shooting the three men, including Huber, who smacked him in the head with a skateboard. Rittenhouse described how after the shootings, he unsuccessfully attempted to surrender to Kenosha police officers stationed at the barricade down the street from where the incidents occurred. One officer told him to go home. Uh, which the teen told Carlson was likely because he did not hear him am- admitting to shooting the riders. Quote, uh, I go back to the car, car source lot number two. I tell everybody there what happened, and I said, I had to do it. And I was just attacked. I was dizzy. I was vomiting. I couldn't breathe. That concussion sounds like. Uh, or probably just stress. stress. Stress or concussion can do both of those things. Uh, quote, we couldn't. I wanted to turn myself into the police in Kenosha, but I wasn't able to because they weren't accepting visitors. So apparently uh, with the barricades and the fence up, so we ended I we ended up turning myself into the Antioch Police Department. That means he probably had friends or family telling him, yeah, turn yourself in somewhere else because they're busy in Kenosha tonight. Uh, Rittenhouse said his hometown police department just south of the state line is the closest law enforcement agency to Kenosha besides that city's barracks for state troopers. Uh, the now acquitted man went on to say that he is, he is not inherently political or and opportunists took advantage of him. Quote, I agree with the BLM movement. I agree everybody has the right to protest and assemble. I agree with that, not necessarily a BLM, BLM movement. Uh, but I do not agree that people have the right to burn down American cities to try to spread their, their message, he said. Uh, I think there are other ways to go around to do that. Correct. Rittenhouse also criticizes initial counsel, high-profile attorney L. Lincoln Wood and co-counsel John Pierce who he said took advantage of him and were at times incompetent. Yeah, their arguments, they did the the prosecution basically did half their jobs. So they they kind of phoned it in. Anyway, so, um, quote, I was in jail for 87 days. Lynn Wood was raising money on my behalf and he held me in jail for 87 days, disrespecting my wishes and put me on media interviews, which I should never have done, along with John Pierce. They said I was safer in jail instead of at home with my family. Rittenhouse said that at one point, per- Pierce uh, claimed Rittenhouse uh, was in an organized militia, which Rittenhouse called blatantly false. I do not, I don't, I didn't know what a militia was, he said. I was like, what the heck? And I'm like, no wonder, oh, finally you're talking like a kid. I was like, what the heck? And I'm like, no wonder people are saying I'm in a militia. It's because he painted that narrative, which uh, which he should should never have, go- have gone there to. Which... He should have never have gone there too, he told Carlson. The 18-year-old, however, conversely praised his eventual counsel, uh, Mark Richards and Corey Chirafisi. Rittenhouse told Carlson uh, he in some ways did not believe uh, he as a person was truly on trial given the way the case was covered. It was the right of self-defense on trial. If I was convicted, no one would ever be privileged to defend their life against attackers, he said. Apparently, to many people on the left, this is a criminal, it is criminal to protect your community. Rittenhouse further condemned Biden for prejudicing, uh, prejudging him as a white, white supremacist in a 2020 campaign ad. Quote, Mr. President, if I could say one thing to you, I would urge you to go back and watch the trial and understand the facts before you make a statement. The Illinois resident said, quote, it's actual malice, defaming my character for him to say something like that. Biden was not alone in his accusations about Rittenhouse and as you know if you keep up with the news everyone's been calling him a white supremacist and stuff like that even though he shot white people and uh, I don't get it. Well, clearly he was the last white person standing so he was the <laughs> Yeah, he is yeah, last white guy standing. Obviously <laughs> in that situation he was the Yeah. Only only racist. <laughs> um here's here's something I I I will say about uh Kyle Rittenhouse and his acquittal. Him crying on the stand and the way he wept after he was found not guilty, were exactly the same. But I see all these people on these left wing news channels trying. (laughs) Vigilante's going to be coming for all of us. (laughs) They're the ones with the crocodile tears. All right, Kyle Rittenhouse, he was very uh, believable at 18. Having to be forced to defend yourself like that, that's emotionally scarring. Even if you know you're in the right, even if logically in your mind, you know you were right to do what you did, you still have to live with the fact that those people are dead. And if you had made different choices in your life, perhaps they wouldn't be dead. That's a fact he's going to have to live with the rest of his life. And that's why he cried on the stand because he knew that no matter what, even if he's acquitted, he has to live with that. All right. And when those charges were coming down, they were being read off and said, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And he just collapsed. I don't blame him all, at all. He's only 18 years old after all. And after all the video coverage and all the multiple video angles that we got from this incident, I can't believe he was as controlled and reserved as he was. If I were in that situation, I would be definitely going to jail I would be getting the guilty verdict because I do not have the control to fire a single shot at somebody who pulls a gun on me. All right? And even in this interview with Tucker Carlson, he seemed like a cal- uh, a calm, controlled, and intelligent young man. He wasn't out there in the street. I'm going to effing kill you, N-words. Anyway, I hope he becomes a very rich man by suing all these people who have been talking trash about him. Since he was arrested. All right. Let's go to this next story. Uh, Dozens of San Francisco area stores and pharmacies have been hit by mobs of smash and grab looters. I'm sure you may have heard about this. So mobs and thieves have ransacked at least two dozen San Francisco area businesses over the weekend. As smash and grab incidents rage in the Bay Area. Where nobody has guns apparently. Uh, Quote, at least two dozen... Uh, Businesses were impacted, Oakland Police Chief LaRon Armstrong told uh, CBS San Francisco. Roving caravans of vehicles (sighs) targeting cannabis operations, (laughs) retail shops, pharmacies throughout the city of Oakland. So they're getting the essentials. Anyway, the mobs of thieves hit a a handful of pharmacies and marijuana dispensaries in Oakland, including the Wellspring Pharmacy uh, that released surveillance video of the scenes to the media. Police added that the mobs in Oakland fired 175 shots during the incidents, forcing officers to pull back to safe locations. The Mercury News reported, do the cops not have guns in San Francisco anymore? Yeah, yeah they're probably not allowed to use them, UK says. I agree, they're probably not allowed to use them. Uh, a local Oakland man is ba- uh, battling cancer, also tried to visit a Walgreens on Sunday, only to find it closed after a robbery. I've got cancer, David Massey said, so I'm trying to find certain meti- trying to get certain medications medications filled and they tell you to go to another Walgreens quote this is the third time that I know of that they have broken into it it hurts us all especially the little little guy that really needs it I guess he's short or something Um, the area kicked off uh, the weekend of crime with a swarm of people uh, descending upon a Louis Vuitton in San Francisco you know just so they can keep eating cleaning out the stores of its high-end merchandise. That same night, hundreds of vehicles targeted mar- marijuana dispensaries in Oakland, Armstrong told the Mercury News. Because they got to feed their kids, you know. They need the important stuff. On Saturday, about 80 people uh, wearing ski masks and arms with crowbars stormed a Nordstrom location near in nearby Walnut Creek. They then rushed from the store to their vehicles with stolen merchandise. Three people have so far been arrested in connection to the, that incident. Uh, San Francisco police said that nearly <clears throat> 12 stores in the city alone were attacked at the same time by a mob of at least 80 people over the weekend. So these uh, these smash and grab things, they've been happening in frequencies. And uh, unfortunately, they don't really, they they know when to strike, but they, uh, these people probably don't even care about the Rittenhouse trial. They just want the free Louis Vuitton stuff and the free weed. All right. They're striking now because uh, they They know the media is just, oh, they're they're pissed off about the Rittenhouse verdict. That's why they did it. And that's why they had to have those Louis Vuitton bags to feed their babies. Their poor starving babies. And I was talking earlier in the show about the Second Amendment. This is the reason. This is the reason the Second Amendment exists. One double-barreled shotgun in a pharmacy behind the counter. Hey, yeah, people may get shot, but maybe they'll stop doing it. You know, murders every single day, every single day in Chicago. You never hear about that in the news. And the cops have their hands tied with yellow tape. These are Americans. These are Americans getting killed. You never hear about it in the news because it doesn't fit the narrative. They have to wait. They have to. They have to wait for a white guy to shoot another white guy, and the guy who got shot was a BLM protester, even though he was white, to call that racist. Before even talking about like the the black on black crime going on in Chicago and other major cities in the United States, not that those are racially motivated, but it's just that for some reason, you know, the uh, Rosenbaum and the other guy, you know. Are, they, are their lives more important than the people getting shot in Chicago? I don't think so. And the reason why the media will focus on them and not those people getting killed in Chicago is because the media is the ones who are racist. How are people not getting it? Anyway. Anyway, let's go to the next story. Uh, this is the Ahmed Aubrey case. So uh, black armed militias gather outside the courthouse and issue a warning. Black black armed militias, it means that they are black people who are in, in armed militias. That's what they mean by that. Outside the Georgia courthouse Monday, where three white men are on trial for the fatal shooting of twenty five year old twenty-five year old Ahmed Arbery, an unarmed black man, and an and a new Black Panther leader issued a warning. Quote, Y'all are in serious trouble because the wrath of karma is coming to on America said a man who identified himself as the Supreme Commander of the New Black Panther Militia. We're not taking it no more. That's how they talk in Brunswick, Georgia. <laughs> as prosecutors and defense lawyers delivered their closing statements, dozens of members of BLM 757, uh line of Judah armed forces, and the New Black Panther Party marched outside the Glenn County Courthouse. The Southern Poverty Law Center called the New Black Panther Party a virtually racist, a vir- virile, Virul- virulently racist and anti-Semitic organization whose leaders, whose leaders, have encouraged violence against whites, Jews, and the in law enforcement. SPLC doing the right thing for once. So Travis McMichael, 35, his father Greg McMichael, 65, and William Roddy Bryan are on trial for murder, aggravated assault, and false imprisonment for the slaying of Arbury in the Satilla Shores outside of Brunswick, Georgia. The activists carried uh, new Black Panther flags and wheeled a coffin with a dummy corpse on which was written countless names of Blacks who were killed by the, at the hands of whites, including George Floyd and Brianna Taylor, Taylor in Instagram video shows. Quote, we're standing in solidarity with the family of Ahmed Aubrey and for those, all those Black lives that have been lost, said one of the rally's organizers, BLM 757 President Japari Jones. That's a great name. <laughs> said. Uh, quote, the message is we won't tolerate Black... Black and Browns being being murdered anymore, and we'll pull up anywhere in the nation," he told Fox News. He said the groups have shared uh, a shared goal of self defense for Black people. Our long term plan is to arm the entire community and respond with responsible gun ownership," he said. We are uh, will be holding classes in the future, and we'll be setting up workshops in all fifty states. When he asked how the groups would respond to a not guilty verdict, Jones says no comment. In closing statements, uh, prosecutor Lynn Dun- Dunakowski argued that defendants pursued Aubrey in a pickup truck for five minutes through a neighborhood on Feb- February 23, 2020, and shot him because he was a black man who refused to talk to them. Uh, the defense told jurors that McMichaels, the, the McMichaels, more than one of them, suspected Aubrey of having committed a crime and were trying to detain him until police arrived. Travis McMichael opened fire only after Arbery attacked him and grabbed his shotgun. He testified last week. All right, so here's the thing: this this particular case has more uh, of the possibility of racism being an, a factor than uh, the than Rittenhouse. So, I mean, I understand why these uh, like new Black Panthers, these Black militia groups, and are there. And you know, I'm all about. Black people getting a hold of firearms so they can de- defend themselves and their families, their communities. I get that. All right. But everyone's out there scared that some white militias out there going to be shooting people. When in fact, I think that these, these uh, Black Panthers and Judah Armed Forces organizations are more likely to cause some trouble. If a not guilty verdict comes down, even though I don't think not guilty is, I don't think that's what's, what's going to happen in this case. All right. I think this is a tough case, too. I think there are a couple of uh, those three dumb rednecks (laughs) who took things too far. You know, citizens arrests are incredibly dangerous. And that's why police officers exist. And if there were more cops on the streets, these these guys wouldn't have tried, you know, if they had a faster response from the police because there were more cops, they wouldn't have been been, uh, (sighs) intending to go into this situation. I think that if you if you try to detain someone, you really shouldn't bring a firearm with you because it can go really, really wrong real quick like it did in this case. All right? That being said, I in this case, I can understand the anger. I can understand. I really can. But you got to wait for the verdict. And even if the verdict comes down as a way you don't like it, that's no reason for violence. You know? I'm okay with like a bunch of white guys getting together and forming militia gr- militia groups and having coffee and going shooting at the range. I'm also okay with black people doing the same thing. They're Americans. They have the right to defend themselves they have the right to right to bear arms. And if there's a bunch of a bunch of black people hanging around the Glen County courthouse who are armed and responsible gun owners, that's probably the safest place in the world to be all right unless they decide to do something crazy if a not guilty verdict comes down. And I guess that's always a risk when it comes to any militia regardless of race. Alright, we got two more stories before we get end. Hey, we actually filled up the show. Two more stories and EK was mad at me last week because I didn't have any happy stories at the end of the show. He says it's usually the first thing I go to He's like, I need to be cheered up too. It's like, okay, fine. It's like, I can't not forget to put some happier stories. <clears throat> so let's talk about Beto O'Rourke, who's running in Texas. So Beto O'Rourke hears from Texas voter, you lost twice, New, no means no. <laughs> so Texas Democrat Beto O'Rourke's 2020, uh, 2022 gubernatorial campaign got underway just days ago, but at least one voter in the state has already let, a form, uh, let the former congressman know what he thinks. Quote, we don't want you here, the man shouted at O'Rourke during a recent campaign event, according to a video posted on social media. At the time, if I've seen this video, it's hilarious. I saw it in Crowder this morning. It is hilarious. At the time, O'Rourke appears to be surrounded by uh, an otherwise supportive crowd. When Beto O'Rourke signs uh, and T-shirts visible, signs T-shirts visible in the background. "Quote on behalf of ranchers, the oil and gas farmers," I'm in your grill, telling you not to come back," the man persisted, as O'Rourke supporters attempted to shout him down and security staffers began to move toward him. The confrontation was reported by the national desk. Quote, you ain't taken by guns either, the O'Rourke critic continued. Nobody wants you here. No means no. Three times, you lost twice. No means no. (laughs) He shouted. The heckler appeared to be referring to O'Rourke's failed attempt to unseat Republican Senator Ted Cruz in 2018 and his aborted bid for the Democratic Party's uh, presidential nomination in 2020. The man in the video is also appearing to references, uh, referencing O'Rourke's past pledge to take away your AR-15s, your AK-47s, which he reiterated over the weekend during an appearance on CNN. (laughs) You are insane going to Texas and trying to do this, dude. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Quote, I still hold this view on what he calls weapons of war, the candidate said on Sunday. O'Rourke's home turf of El Paso was the site of a mass shooting in August 2019 that resulted in 23 deaths. Uh, Prior to his uh, Senate and presidential runs, O'Rourke, who was 49, served in the El El Paso City Council from 2005 to 2012, then served in Capitol Hill from 2012 to 2018 after being elected to the U.S. House to represent the 16th Congressional District of West Texas. Now he is looking to unseat uh, incumbent Texas Governor Greg Abbott, hoping in part that issues such as controversial Texas abortion law will help (laughs) help the Democrat pull off a victory. But Abbott isn't the only potential a- obstacle between work and the government's chair. Texas-born Hollywood star Matthew McCona- McConaughey is reportedly also mulling entry into the race. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Jeez, you know he'd win, too. Damn it. Anyway, and a recent poll showed that the actor running ahead of both Abbott and work if he chooses to run, according to the Dallas Morning News. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even read that sentence. I just knew that's what they're going to say next. McConaughey has not yet indicated whether he had run as a Democrat, Republican, or Independent, New York Post reported. On the GOP side, former Texas Republican Party leader, Alan West, a former Florida congressman, another familiar name, seeking the state's top job, West, a former Army officer as well, launched his campaign back in the 4th of July. I'm sorry. As I was reading that last paragraph, I was thinking about Matthew Mahon, Mahon, McConaughey, uh, like, didn't he get the cops called him? Cause he was stoned out of his mind playing the bongos. <laughs> all right, man. Yeah, You'd have, to answer that on campaign trail. <laughs> You'd have to answer for that on the campaign trail. Indeed he would. <laughs> Come on, man. You know, what's good. You know, it's going to be all good. I'm going to, i going to take a gun. I know beta would, but i, I ain't going to take a gun. Ain't I pretty when I smile? <laughs> One more happy story for you in the show. Florida man takes children without father figures on fishing excursions. Eleven years ago, William Big Will Dunn set out on a mission to help a child growing up without a father figure. He turned to the one thing that brought him peace as a kid, fishing. Since then, Dunn has dedicated his life to helping foster children and those who are growing up without a father figure by taking them on fishing excursions in Clearwater, Florida, through his nonprofit, Take a Kid Fishing, Inc. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Dunn had, has worked with thousands of children as part of his fishing program, but it all started with one very important child, Cameron DeLong, who was eight years old at the time. Quote, I saw this young boy and uh, that was frustrated and show anger. I didn't know why until I found out his father was not in his life, Dunn told Fox News. Eventually, Dunn approached DeLong's mom and asked if he could take him fishing. Quote, I knew how special it was when my dad took me, Dunn said. Just being out on the water is like being out in another world. I can't explain it. Yeah, he pretty much did. Uh, Dunn admitted that he had a rough upbringing in Miami, but saw fishing as an escape. It was the very first thing that, quote, relieved all my anxi- uh, anxiety and stress that I had built up throughout the day, he said. Suddenly, Dunn wanted to see a positive, started to see a positive change in DeLong. He started doing better, better in school. Showing more respect to his mom and, quote, just becoming more of a man of the household because his dad was still not in his life, Dunn said. Quote, I get off work at five and he'd be over at the house loading fishing rods in the back of my truck, he said. We fished a lot, two or three days a week, plus on the weekends. After seeing the changes in DeLong's life, Dunn said that it became became his uh, life's calling to help other kids that are fatherless. He began reaching out to foster homes and started taking groups of 10 to 25 kids, sorry, 20 to 25 kids on a fishing charter out of Clearwater, Florida every Saturday. He did so out of his own pocket. Quote, we take them out, we uh, show them a good day and spend time with them and everything. He said, just to get out of the boat, you can see it just to get out on the boat. You see the difference in them. These excursions, according to Dunn's website, teach children, quote, life skills and responsibility inside and outside the classroom, such as learning patience, teamwork, and how to relax and avoid making harsh harsh and rash decisions. Quote, fishing also teaches them to support each other, whether they win or lose, if you catch a fish or not. This website says, three years ago, Take a Kid Fishing Incorporated formally became a nonprofit, allowing Dunn to accept donations. Over the past 11 years, Dunn has said these children have become a part of his family. And Dunn Dun said he still goes out on the water with now 19-year-old DeLong who views Dunn as a father figure. Now, you know, uh, it's, fishing is such a simple thing. It really is. But it takes patience. It takes um, – I like fishing for the same reason I like baseball. It takes timing. It takes patience. It takes, you know, knowledge and know-how. You know, it, and it takes a lot of self-control. And so I think that, you know, I mean, you, you know, you pull in the line for the fifth time, and there's nothing on it. You can't be shouting at the water. What's wrong with you, fish? Why aren't you getting on a line, fish? That scares the fish away. <laughs> you don't do that. All right. It takes a lot of self-control. It takes a lot of resourcefulness. It takes a lot of ingenuity and brain power and patience to do something as simple as fishing, which really isn't that simple. All right. If you've ever been fishing, you know, fishing isn't exactly simple. Sometimes it is, depends on where you're fishing. Additionally, I don't know, pretty much everyone I know who fishes, who is a fisherman, who is an angler, they started doing it with their dad, all right? And so I think that is incredibly important, especially as, you know, our, our government and our media, they tried to drive families apart. Uh, they give incentives to keep dads out of the homes to provide a positive, you know, upbringing to these children because masculinity is so bad and stuff like that. But, you know, fishing is a very important thing when it comes to, you know, connecting with your children. Um, especially if you, if you have no other way to connect with them, you know, there's a sense of accomplishment when you catch a fish or even when you almost catch a fish and it's like, Oh, so close. Did you see that flash in the water? That must've been a big one. That must've been a big one. And then you get, you know, you pack up, it's getting too dark. You pack up everything you get in the truck It's like, yeah, you know, maybe on Saturday, maybe when we get out on Saturday, we'll get one. And you learned how to keep going with success or failures. You learn to support each other with your success and failures. It's quite, quite a lovely and important thing. And it's just one happy story to end the show upon. So I want to remind you that I have a Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash shockmonkeyradio. Become a patron. I would appreciate it very much. It's three bucks a month. It's just a very special Black Friday deal, $3 a month. Uh, Go up there, sign up, become a patron. I'd appreciate it. If you can't do that, go over to uh, use Cash App to send me money on the Cash App. Use the cash tag shockmonkeyradio, all one word. You can send me money any amount. You know, if you want to send me a million dollars, Elon Musk, send me a million dollars, Elon Musk. Uh, I would appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, So I want you to have a happy Thanksgiving. And uh, this has been Shock Monkey Radio. I'm the madman, and I love you.